Trinity Baptist Church. Once I was driven in basketball for skill and for others to view me as good and believe this kid can play and to believe myself that I could make a significant contribution. I was willing to train for hours, searching for my sweet spots and tendencies and practicing fancy moves and tricks in the game, because, mostly because I didn't look the part. Then Jesus found me, and he told me that the opinions of others aren't as significant as his, whether I have zero a night, or 20 points a night, or a triple-double or not. Today, I don't play for anyone else. I play for the glory of God, and to glorify his name through my passion. My name is Nathan Benjamin Chen, and I am new. reading from the book of Luke. Now the festivals of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and looked for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. The, the word, word of the, the Lord. Lord. Well, this is the, the, last, <clears throat> the last Sunday of Lent. And for the last five weeks, we have been looking at, at these great themes of Lent. This morning, we are not going to look at so much a, a theme of Lent as we're going to look at an event that occurred during this season. And it's a, a very important event. The, it's the meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples on the Thursday night before he was crucified on Friday. We know it as the Last Supper. And here at Trinity, and, and in a lot of churches, we celebrate the Lord's table every week. And so I thought that this morning it might be a good idea for us, might, would be meaningful for us, and hopefully instructive, to really take a look at what this meal is all about. Now what I usually do on Sunday mornings is I will teach for 30 or 35 minutes, and, and then I'll have a little, you know, two or three minutes segue connecting the message to the table. This morning, what you've just heard is my two to three minute sermon. And now we're going to spend 35 minutes segueing to the table. All right. So the, the, the bulk of the, what we're going to do today is we're just going to talk about the table as we prepare to come. And so... I, you know, what I hope to do is, is fill in some, some historical context and, and help us to really appreciate what's going on. If you will turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Luke chapter 22, and we're actually going to begin at the end of chapter 20, 21, the last couple of verses, because I think it, it helps us get the context at the, end of, at the end of chapter 21, we see that a, a division, there's a division that occurs in the nation of Israel. It, Israel had 
these, these groups. They had the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. They had Zealots and Herodians. But, but there was this new group that was emerging, and they, they didn't have a recognized name, but we could look back on them and call them Jesuits because they were the followers of Jesus. And this group was growing. The scene t- takes place during the, the week after Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday uh, to the triumphant cries of the people. And at the end of verses 37, or chapter 21, and verses 37 and 38, it says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Chapter 22, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching. So do you see this scene? Jesus is, he's teaching every morning in the temple and then he's going out to the Mount of Olives um, during this week and it's Passover. And so there's, there were probably about 2 million Jews in Jerusalem. Some of them were residents but, but a lot of pilgrims, a lot of people made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so when the text says that people came to hear him teach in the temple, we're talking about huge crowds. We don't know exactly how many, but this is not, this is not an insignificant number of people. Now, to better understand why Jesus is, is drawing these large crowds, we have to understand that for six centuries, imagine that, 600 years, the nation of Israel has lived under Gentile dominion. All right, there's been some Gentile nation that has lorded it over the Jews for 600 years. So it's in this ethos of oppression that Jesus comes and he's, and he's preaching freedom. He's preaching the kingdom of God, and he's talking about the fact that he's the Messiah. Now, the fact that he would claim to be the Messiah was not unique, because there were a lot of people that claimed to be Messiah. But not only was Jesus claiming to be Messiah, but Jesus also happened to miraculously feed a multitude from a little boy's lunchbox. Not only did Jesus claim to be Messiah, but he also happened to calm the seas. He also happened to heal the sick. He also happened to raise the dead. So if you're claiming to be Messiah and you're backing it up with this, you're going to draw a crowd. There's credibility to your teaching. And that's what's going on with Jesus. So there had to have been this great sense of anticipation, uh, a, a feeling of reform, and, and that liberation was coming. And Jesus didn't do anything to, to dissuade that kind of thinking. Into this, you add the Jewish leadership. And the fact that the Jewish leadership was trying to protect the nation. You see, the the Jewish leadership was concerned that if Jesus kept going the way that he was going, that he would would incite the people to 
to follow him. And if they followed him and named him king, then that would cause problems with Rome. You see, Israel was operating fairly freely under Roman rule, but they were still under Roman rule. And if they started naming, if they named their own king, then that would cause Rome to come in and and impose martial law and, and squelch the freedom that they had. You can see this explicitly stated in John chapter 11. It says in verse 48, the Jewish leadership said, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place, meaning the temple, and our nation. You see, the, the leadership is afraid of Rome. They're afraid if they let Jesus continue that Rome's going to come in and, and put the kibosh on the nation. And so in verse 49, the high priest that year, a man by the name of Caiaphas, stood up and said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. See what Caiaphas is saying? Caiaphas is not a bad guy. He's not a cruel man. He, it's not that he has anything against Jesus per se. It's that he's afraid of what Jesus is going to do to the nation because Rome is going to come in. And so he tells the people, look, guys, if we don't, if we don't kill this man, then the whole nation is in trouble. And so it makes sense in Luke 22 where it says in verse 2, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. You see, what they didn't want to do is come and take Jesus while he was in the midst of these multitudes because that could incite a riot which would then make Rome lower the boom on the nation. So it's Passover. It's this time of celebration. Passover is like Israel's 4th of July because it's their, it's their national identity. It's when they celebrate their freedom from the bondage of Israel. It is, it's their nation's birthday and it's the beginning of, of their religious calendar. So this is a huge time of celebration. And there are, you know, like I said before, probably 2 million Jews in Jerusalem to celebrate this. And Jesus is drawing these crowds, and so the, the Jewish leadership says, we've got to figure out a way that we can get Jesus when he's alone. Because if we do it when he's in a crowd, we're in trouble. So in order to get him when he's alone, we need somebody on the inside who will betray him, who can can tell us where we can find him when he's going to be alone. That someone is in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. What do we know about Judas? He was the treasurer. He was the CFO of the disciples. He was the guy who handled the money. Why didn't they let Matthew do it? He's a tax collector. Nobody trusts tax collectors. So they let Judas do it. 
They trusted him. They respected him. We also know about Judas that he, um, he was most likely more educated and more sophisticated than the other guys. The other disciples were all from, from the northern part of Israel, from Galilee, which is kind of the Appalachia of Israel. These were the, I'm just saying, they, they were the country boys. Judas was from Kerioth, which was in the south, which was kind of the Cambridge or the, the Hamptons. You know, it was a much more sophisticated area of Israel. And, and so Judas is probably better educated, more cosmopolitan. But we also know from the Gospel of John that he's a thief. Because John says that he was skimming off the top for his own, um, for his own desires. Apparently, he was following Jesus for selfish ends. Uh, he wanted he wanted to follow Jesus because of what Jesus could ultimately do for him. And nobody knew he was a phony except Jesus and Satan. And so when when the things start going down, and Judas looks at the situation, he's thinking, well, wait a minute, this guy, Jesus, is not the the political Messiah I thought he was going to be. And um, I'm got, I've got really nothing to gain because he's talking about crosses and dying for sin and all of this stuff. And if he's not talking about a military and political kingdom, then I don't want any part of it. And I'm not going to go down as he goes down. So he goes to the Jewish leadership and he says, hey, you need somebody to help you get Jesus when he's not with the crowds, I'm your guy. And, um, but it's going to cost you something. And I say, well, how much? And, and Matthew tells us that it was 30 pieces of silver, which most scholars agree was, was equal to about um, four months' wages. What, do we know what is making this noise over here? Somebody's beeper. Oh, my kid. I, I have a, somebody's child is missing. It wasn't me. <laughs> so they come up with a plan. And it says in verse 6, Judas consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. That opportunity would be the Passover meal because every family would go to their own home for the meal. And I'm sure Judas is thinking, all I need to do is find out where we're going to have the meal and then I can go and I can tell the Sanhedrin and they can come and get Jesus at, at that time. But verse 7, Jesus throws Judas a curve. It says, the came day that, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John. Not Judas. The guy who handles the money, the guy who would be to 
paying for all of this stuff to make preparation, the guy who normally would have done this, Jesus doesn't send Judas. He sends Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Verse 9, where do you want us to prepare for it? Um, Now, let me just talk for a moment about what the preparation. So, on, on the day of Passover, at about 2.30 in the afternoon, there would be three trumpet blasts that would, that would go out over the city. And all of the men, the, the heads of the household, the men would be charged with, their job that day was to go and secure a lamb And at 2.30 in the afternoon, when these trumpet blasts went, all of the men simultaneously would slit the throats of the lambs. And so this had to be a macabre event because you've got 70,000, 80,000 lambs. And if you're standing outside of the city, you can hear these lambs bleeding, bleating, and bleating. And then you hear the trumpets sound. And then you hear the, the cries of death from these lambs, and then silence. There was a movie called The Silence of the Lambs. And then these men would clean the lambs, they would wrap them in, in cloth. They would take them home, and then to prepare them, they would take two pomegranate stakes, and they would drive one through the ribs that would hold the the arms of the lamb up, and then they would drive another one down from the head through the tail. And that's how they would roast the lamb. Literally, the lamb would be crucified to take on the judgment of God for another year. And that was Peter and John's job. They were to go and secure a lamb and, and kill the lamb and stake it out and prepare it for the Passover meal. But the question still remains, verse 9, where are they going to bring it back to? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 10, and I can imagine Judas kind of leaning in, trying to get the street address. You know, he's, He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. What's significant about that? Men don't carry water jars. That's the woman's job, especially today. Now... You might see rarely a man carrying a water jar, but not today. Because today, the men are all on lamb duty. And so to see a man carrying a water jar would have been very rare. So Jesus says, when you see this guy, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. So Peter and John take off. Now, why would Jesus do it like this? 
one, it keeps Judas from knowing where the meal's going to be, and Jesus wants to have this Last Supper with his disciples uninterrupted. He wants to celebrate this intimate time. What it also does is it guarantees that Judas is going to have to leave the meal to go and get the Sanhedrin or the the Jewish leadership to come get Jesus. Therefore, Judas is not going to be able to participate in the meal. Once he finds out where the meal is taking place, he's going to have to leave. The point of application in that for me is that Jesus Jesus invites us all to, to come to the table with him. He doesn't demand perfection at the table, but what he does require is that you want to have fellowship with him. In order to come to the table with Jesus, you want to, you have to want to be in fellowship with him. And that's not what Judas wanted. And so Jesus made sure that he wouldn't be there. And so verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They didn't have chairs. Da Vinci painted those in. They sat on cushions and kind of leaned over on their elbow. Um, Verse 15, And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, Jesus knew he was about to die. He knew this was the last time he was going to have this meal with them. And he eagerly wanted to have it. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, we have to understand the magnitude of what comes next. Verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is the beginning of the Passover meal. Some, some of you are aware that, that Passover meals have four parts. How many have been to a Seder? Or how many are, are Jewish? Okay, so, I'm, so this won't be news to you. So there are, four, there are four parts to the meal. There are four cups. The first cup is the cup of sanctification that is taken from, um, it's based on God's statement, I will bring you out from under the burdens of, of Egypt. And there's, there's a whole um, kind of dialogue that goes on with the head of the household to the to the people in the household around this first cup. And then there's the second cup, the cup of deliverance that comes from God's statement, I will deliver you from the slavery of them. And, and there's a whole dialogue that goes around that. And then the meal is served. After the second cup comes the main meal. And then after the main meal, there is the third cup, the cup of redemption. It comes from God's statement, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then after that, and there's some dialogue around that, and then there's the fourth cup, the the cup of praise or or the cup of restoration based on God saying, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So you've you've got this, after the meal happens, you've got these last two cups 
the cup of redemption and the, and the cup of restoration where that's about the people being drawn to God and, and they're going to be his people and he's going to be their God. So that's what's going on here. And Jesus is starting the meal. Verse 17 is, is about the first two cups. Verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them. This, this would have been um, part of the third cup. It's part of the third cup ritual, the, the cup of redemption. And Jews all over Jerusalem would have been doing the same thing. This is not... This, everybody in town would have been doing this. Okay? And... It would have been at this point in the evening when the head of the household would have, would have taken the, the matzah and he would, have, he would have held it up and he would have broken it and he would have said these words. He said, our people have partaken of the afikoman, the, the last food to be eaten in the meal as a reminder of the Passover lamb, the last sacrifice for our redemption. And then the, the people around the table table would have responded, as we break the afikoman, we recognize that our bondage was broken by God through the Lamb. So Jews all over the city were doing this. And the disciples who were sitting with Jesus, this is not new to them. They've been doing it all their life, once a year. This is the Passover meal. This is celebrating what God did 15 centuries ago. And so Jesus, he takes the bread and it says after he broke it, he gave it to them saying, and what he said next had to shock them. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this, not in remembrance of the lamb that had been slain 15 centuries before. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, I'm the lamb. I know you've been doing this for all your life and you've been remembering the exodus and you've been remembering the sacrifice that was made there that that." that animal who was crucified, the animal that was broken, but he says, that was a shadow, that was not what ultimately God was going to do. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. I'm the one who will be broken to give you real freedom. I'm the one that will, will die to to give you life with the Father. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus was saying. Verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, after the meal, after the main portion, he took the cup. This is the third cup. And Jewish families all over Jerusalem are doing this. They're all saying these words. And, and he takes the cup and he holds this cup up. And as Jewish families all over the city are doing the same thing to celebrate this lamb that had been slain, that, 
that provided for their redemption from Israel or from Egypt, Jesus says, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When Jesus says this is the new covenant, he was referring to a text that all of the guys around the table were familiar with, a text from Jeremiah. You see, God had made a covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant said, if you worship me, I will bless you. But if you worship other gods, I will turn you over to them, to, to your enemies. I will, I will not bless you. It was a, it was a two-way covenant. It was, if you do this, then I will do that. But if you don't do this, then I'm not going to bless you and you're going to be in trouble. And guess what? Israel did not worship God and thus God handed them over to their enemies. And so as the walls are falling and as the Babylonians are coming, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. And in this time of great distress, God gives this great word of hope that he was not through with his people. Jeremiah 31, 31, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. See what God's saying? There was an old covenant. That covenant I made through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, where I was taking them by the hand and I told them, worship me and I'll bless you. They didn't do it, even though I was a faithful God. God says, I'm not just going to recreate the old covenant because you couldn't keep it. He says, I'm going to make a brand new one. The old covenant said, do this and be blessed. The new covenant says, be blessed. Now do this. See the difference? The old covenant was about restricting evil. The new covenant is about enabling good. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Sound like a fourth cup? The cup of restoration. God says, I'm not going to have to put these laws outside of you to terrify you. I'm going to give you a rebirth and I'm going to write it on your heart and I'm going to enable you to do good. 
Watch more, verse 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, and catch this, forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Friends, those Old Testament sacrifices did not bring forgiveness of sin. It just put, pushed judgment back for one more year. But what God is saying is that's the old covenant. The new one is, I will remember your sin no more. The shadows of the old covenant will end. So in Jeremiah 31, God speaks about the termination of the old covenant with its conditions and the institution of a new covenant of forgiveness and the new life afforded by grace. And Jesus said, it is my blood that is this new covenant. He states that he is the fulfillment of Passover. Bread and wine are symbols of God's provision and of the great joy that Israel had because of that provision. And so at Passover, you would eat and you would enjoy the bread and you would thank God for feeding you in the wilderness. You would thank God for for his care of you and, and giving you life. You would drink the cup in joy and exaltation of the deliverance that God had. And at the Last Supper, Jesus Christ has the unparalleled audacity to take the bread and say, this is me. This is me. I'm the one broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, it's not just wine that you receive, but it's blood, my blood, and I'm going to pour out my blood. I'm going to be that lamb that you can have redemption. It's not just pushing back judgment. It's the forgiveness of sin. Friends, this is an amazing statement. And Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood being poured out for you. Friends, the Passover celebration was symbolic of what Jesus would come to do in order to achieve ultimate redemption. Most of us here this morning are not from a Jewish tradition. And so we cannot appreciate the gasp that would be heard or that would be that would come from the mouths of Jewish readers who would who would read this gospel message where Jesus claimed to be the Lamb. Every year for 1,500 years, they would glory in the crucified Lamb. They would glory in a cross of blood. And now Jesus says, this is me. He says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. What's ironic is that the that in in all their efforts 
to protect the nation and the, the semblance of freedom and the symbols of the Old Testament and the symbols of the Old Covenant. In all of their efforts to do that, the Jewish leadership missed the very one that they'd been waiting for. They missed the Messiah. Oh, that we don't do the same thing. Oh, that we don't hold on to the the symbols and the ritual. And in so doing, miss the one who came to save us. Hosanna. Save us now. So let's come to the table. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have invited us all to come. And the only requirement is that we want to. (laughs) The only requirement is that we want to be in fellowship with you. Lord, we are all in very different places today. And a lot of us are struggling with with things. We're all got sin stuff going on. Um, Some of us are in conflict with others. Some of us are, are struggling with addictions. Some of us are struggling with our sexuality, our heterosexuality or our homosexuality. Some of us are are adulterers, some of us are, are gossips, some of us are slanderers and liars and, and thieves. We had all of that going on in here this morning. But what's beautiful about the table is that Jesus says, come. Just come. If you want to be in fellowship with me, come. And so I invite you this morning that no matter where you are, maybe you're far from God, maybe you've never begun a relationship with God through Christ, but all that can change today and in this moment. Because as long as you're not Judas, wanting to walk away and say, I want no part of this. If you want fellowship with Jesus, then Jesus wants fellowship with you. And he invites you to come. So all you have to do this morning is just say, Lord Jesus, (laughs) I want fellowship. 